You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15. And this morning we're going to be starting at verse 6. You'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 923. We're going to be reading down through verse 21. So Acts 15, verses 6 through 21. Hear the word of God. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Well, the Judaizers, whom we considered last time, stirred up controversy by promoting adherence to Judaism. They claimed that Gentile converts had to be circumcised in order to be saved. This was the only way for them to be accepted into the covenant community. The congregation in Antioch was experiencing no small dissension, according to verse 2. So Paul and Barnabas and some others were dispatched as delegates to Jerusalem. A general assembly was made up of all the leaders who would decide the issue. 
And in this particular text, we have an opportunity to peer into the council that assembled in Jerusalem. The apostles and the elders had to deliberate and conclude a very important issue. Must the Gentile converts keep the rites and the rituals of the Mosaic law? To state it even more succinctly, what must one do to be saved? It's a question that's very relevant for us. Last week, we found that faith in Jesus Christ is the only condition. Saving faith itself is a gift from God, so salvation is by grace. And this will be the conclusion drawn by the Jerusalem Council after much deliberation. But first, there was a lot of debate and the testimony of two very influential men. So as we look at this, we discover that the Jerusalem council was comprised of both apostles and elders. And most likely, I think, that there was a multitude of believers who were present and observing. Why do I say that? Well, in verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Church men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So the whole church was watching, listening, and learning. And there was lively discussion, vigorous debate, earnest consideration. And the conservatives, the conservative, conservative Judaizers said that circumcision was essential to salvation. This had been how God had marked and identified his people for centuries. Hundreds, if not thousands of years. Now, the evangelicals said that nothing else was necessary for salvation but faith. And these agreed with Paul and Barnabas, who said that circumcision had become obsolete. It was no longer binding on those who had been appointed to believe in Christ from all eternity, which is a phenomenal concept for us to consider. And the issue was important enough to call together this council, and the stakes could not have been higher. Because nothing less than the gospel itself was under close consideration. For that reason, the eternal well-being of souls was in the balance. Would the church stand for truth or be diverted into heresy? Would she espouse the gospel of grace, or would it be salvation by works? Solomon tells us in Proverbs 14 that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And it's an exhortation for you and I, as well as the council, to look well to the foundation and the soundness of our faith. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And I doubt anyone would have accused the Judaizers of being insincere. I don't. After all, they wanted to uphold the divinely ordained law of Moses. God's the one who gave it. But they were sincerely wrong. They failed to see the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And if you miss Christ, you miss life. It's the broad road to destruction, as one passage puts it. Paul told the Galatians at one point, I, Paul, 
say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Those who seek to be justified by law, he tells us, are severed from Christ. So by trying to do something towards salvation, we actually renounce Christianity. Our salvation doesn't depend on how good we are. Our salvation does not depend on how nice we try to be. It depends on God's grace through Christ received by faith. You may not be a very nice person, and yet you can still be a sincere Christian. Now, of course, the sanctifying work of the Spirit over time will probably make you nicer, but it has nothing to do with your justification, how nice you are. In our day, people think Christians are just nice people. Christians are people who believe in Christ. After considerable debate, the Apostle Peter finally stands up to speak, and he begins his speech by solemnly testifying to his own experience. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That was his experience. You'll remember, he had preached Christ to the centurion Cornelius and his household. Gentiles. And as he preached at that point, the Holy Spirit fell on those Gentiles who heard the word. And it was a powerful demonstration from heaven that Peter's sermon was true. And those people weren't circumcised. They were filled with the Spirit of Christ. How do the Judaizers explain that? Why would God bless disobedience. They're not circumcised. They're not following the law. The Spirit fills them. And the Apostle calls the Holy Spirit the guarantee of our inheritance. So if the Spirit is the guarantee and the uncircumcised Cornelius is filled by the Holy Spirit, then it must mean that to be saved, Gentiles need nothing more than faith. That's his point. God bore witness to the word of Peter and the conversion of the Gentiles. And in Caesarea, those believing Jews who accompanied Peter were amazed and dumbfounded. You're kidding me. They don't have to do anything but believe? That's right. That's exactly right. It was all because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, they said. And God gives his spirit only to those whom he's accepted in his sight. Their hearts had been cleansed, not by Jewish rituals, but by saving faith. And I want you to notice something in this text. Look at verse 8, how Peter highlights the omniscience of the creator, omniscience, knowing all things. He says, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting? God is described here by a word that literally means the knower of hearts. The knower of hearts. 
Only one other time is that Greek word used in the New Testament. It's when they sought a replacement for the apostle Judas, and they prayed this way. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen. So our God is the great knower of hearts. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He discerns our thoughts and intentions, and we can only look on the outward appearance, but God knows the heart. Jeremiah 17, as Kess read this morning, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. It's the inward man. It's the heart with which God is especially concerned. Speaking in the name of divine wisdom, Solomon makes this declaration, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Not a piece of the heart, not a room in the heart, but the whole heart. God is not satisfied with a part of your heart. A heart divided is going to die. He made it, he redeemed it, he preserves it, and he will eventually glorify it. Why would anybody, therefore, dare to give it to the evil one who torments and infects it? My son, give me your heart, he says. But of course, as the human heart is by nature evil, the Lord will have nothing from it. You see, it's only until it is renewed and given to Christ that anything can come from it that is acceptable. Only when the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart can anything good flow from it. And only then, by the Spirit's power, can the believer surrender his or her heart to God. And that's the wonder of the new birth, born again. It's a miracle of grace. It's a supernatural work that neither you nor I can control. The wind blows where it wishes. The Spirit regenerates wherever He will. And it's the miracle of new birth. We begin to honor God's name and follow His Son and observe His ways. And this is exactly what God said in Deuteronomy 5. He said, and I quote, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments. And that's fulfilled when the Holy Spirit recreates the heart and we begin to keep his commandments. Not perfectly, but sincerely. And so Peter's point is this, that if God accepted them without circumcision, then we should too. He cleansed their hearts by faith. What need is there of other conditions? If the Lord doesn't require more from Cornelius, why should we? Why should we make him get circumcised? Peter's logic was sound, and to impose circumcision would basically be to oppose God. So in this new covenant, he makes no distinction between believing Jews and believing Gentiles, regardless of one's ethnicity, One's heart is cleansed by faith in Jesus. Believing Gentiles are accepted on equal footing with believing Jews. That's huge for the New Testament church. Now, one important lesson, I think, is for us to appreciate the exclusivity of the gospel. 
Exclusivity. That's it. Alone. Nothing else. In other words, there is only one way of salvation and there is only one Redeemer. Whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile, if you are saved, it is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else may be substituted. Nothing else can save. Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And again, as Kess read, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching, the word of life. Martha was overly concerned with making sure that people were fed, comfortable. And both things are good, mind you. Both of those things are good. But only one can be considered as necessary. It's necessary because apart from faith in Christ, there is no salvation. And those who choose Jesus will have what they choose and their choice will be commended. So one thing is necessary. The exclusivity of the gospel. Nothing else in all the world can compare. He is the only way of salvation. But somebody says to me then, and this is very relevant in our culture, why will those who have never heard the gospel be condemned on the last day? Well, the answer that I give is simply this. They're not going to be condemned for failing to receive Christ, whom they never heard. Their condemnation is declared because of the guilt of their sin. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, pastor, but what if they live a morally upstanding life? What if they're trying to be good and kind, the best that they can be? Well, that's impossible, I would say, because like everybody else, they're polluted with sin. They were born with it. They daily pursue it. They don't repent of all of it. And even the best of human beings break the moral law in thought, word, and deed, and the wages of sin is death. So it doesn't matter how good or kind they try to be, sin deserves death. Okay, but my imaginary friend here says, what about those people who are so deeply and sincerely religious, more than most others? Is there no one, you're telling me, out of all the billions of religious people in this world, non-Christians, who can be saved? Right. They can't. All non-Christian religions are false. You might think that's harsh, but that's not my teaching. That's the Bible's teaching. They may contain elements of truth, but as systems, they're false. None of them contain the truth about salvation in Christ alone. Therefore, no matter how zealous or devoted a non-Christian is, the non-Christian can't be saved. 
The Apostle Paul himself is a perfect example. He rose right above his equals in his generation, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And yet the apostle Paul, before he was converted, was lost. He was as close as you can be, and yet was outside the kingdom. But my imaginary questioner says to me, cannot sincerity count for something? How about a person with no guile? How about that person who has no guile? Well, we have to understand that sincerity has no value apart from the truth. Sincerity in anything other than Christianity gains a person nothing. In fact, the more sincere I am in a false religion, the more certain is my ruin. Those Muslims who flew those jets into the World Trade Center were sincere. I have to give them that. They thought they were serving God and they died to obtain his favor. But their sincerity did nothing for them but drive them straight to hell. It did not and it could not free them from the guilt and punishment of sin. But once again, I'm questioned. That seems so unfair. Scores of people have no opportunity to hear the gospel. How unfair is that? Well, God does not owe everyone an equal opportunity for salvation. The American idea of equal opportunity has no place in the plan of redemption. God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. He is under no obligation to save anyone, nor to offer it to everyone. God is the aggrieved party. We sinned against him. And justice demands death. And if he is gracious, and he extends mercy to some, why would anybody complain? You see, it's not for us to judge, but simply to accept the gracious terms of salvation when they're offered. As Jesus teaches, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And you and I both know that everybody in this world is on one of those two ways, either easy or hard. If we simply go where others go and act as others act and worship the way others worship with some vague notion that everything's going to work out, we perish. But if we receive and rest upon the Lord Jesus for salvation as the Jerusalem Council is advocating, then we'll go to heaven. It's as simple as that. 
And repentance and faith in Christ has never been popular in the world. Many have died for it. But that's the way of salvation. And it's exclusive. Well, of course, after Peter's speech, the discussion ended and the entire crowd sat in silence. And at some point, Paul and Barnabas rehearsed their ministry among the Gentiles, and they recounted how through them God had worked signs and wonders. And they described how their efforts had been blessed and endorsed by the Lord. Believing Gentiles had been accepted on the basis of faith in Christ. And that's when James, we got to be thankful for James, the Lord's half-brother, he rises up to make a speech. Now, this was a leader of the Jerusalem church, a man well-respected by the Jews especially. This was their man. And after hearing all the testimony and weighing the evidence, James becomes an evangelical. He affirms the gospel because he had been convinced at this council regarding the truth of justification by faith alone. (laughs) And so he quotes Amos, this ancient prophet, who foretold the coming destruction and future restoration of Israel. And he said that after being ruined, Israel would be restored but to her former glory. And when that came about, Gentiles would be saved. This had been prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Gentiles would be saved. And James said that that very thing was taking place in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And therefore, he concluded that God's kingdom be offered to all believers It was becoming more widespread than David ever dreamed of. It was circling the globe. Believers from all over the world were turning to Christ, and they're still turning to Christ. And the true Israel, the church, was being gathered from the four corners of the earth. But you can imagine how this would have caused some problems between Jew and Gentile. They lived life according to very different rules. Gentiles would eat things that were not supposed to be eaten by Jews. Gentiles would practice things that Jews were not supposed to practice. And at the same time, Gentiles would ignore things that Jews were supposed to observe. And these things were meant to distinguish between the two. Keep the Jews separate from the Gentiles so that the seed of the woman could come. But now, these Jews and Gentiles are being baptized into the same church. They're sitting in the same pews. And if there was going to be real fellowship, something had to be done. So James, in his wisdom, suggested something, and the Jerusalem Council adopted a set of guidelines, not necessary for salvation, but to maintain peaceful relationships. And by adopting these, Jews and Gentiles could get along, hopefully. Meat offered to idols was an abomination to the Jews, so let's avoid that. Strangled meat from animals killed in such a way that it might leave some blood. And blood was not to be consumed because the life is in the blood. So don't do that. Sexual immorality was so rampant among the Gentiles that it had to be emphasized. 
It's a moral prohibition, the seventh commandment, and it needed to be stressed because the Gentile standards of morality have been so lax that they had to be reminded. So these four things had the potential of hindering fellowship between Jews and Gentiles in the church, and therefore they exhorted all Christians to follow them. I think what this does is help us appreciate the importance of truth and unity. I hope you can see that. Notice at the beginning of the council how they focused on defending the truth. It was a choice between the gospel of grace and salvation by works. And you and I face that every day in our lives and experience. Do you judge yourself by a standard of works? Do you ever get to the point thinking to yourself, I am just not good enough. I have a hard time. I think there are many humble believers who get deeply discouraged because they think somehow salvation depends on the strength of their faith or the breadth of their repentance, or the degree of their faithfulness. No, 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 that's not true. In spite of all of your demerit and my demerit, God loves you. Christ died for you. The Spirit fills you. Your salvation does not depend on what you do. It depends on what Christ did. And yes, we strive for holiness. We're told to do so, but we do so out of gratitude and not as slaves. So at the beginning of the council, they fought for truth. And you and I need to do the same thing in our own minds. It's not how good I am, how nice I am, how faithful I am. It's what God has done in Christ. But secondly, at the end of the council, they focused on preserving the unity of the church. It was important to assist these new believers through the transition period because for centuries, Jews and Gentiles had been distinguished. And the truth is what set them free from long-held prejudices. It would be good for the Gentiles to respect the consciences of their Jewish believers. So truth and unity, they go together. And it's dangerous to have one and not the other. If you and I have truth without unity, then we're going to become critical and harsh. Paul says this knowledge puffs up. I think knowledge is a good thing, but if it's mingled with callous, loveless pride, it's dangerous. We're tempted to despise and to pass judgment on those who don't agree with us. That's when we become like the self-righteous Pharisee who prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And all of those things may have been true. His life was free of gross and scandalous sins. And yet he was not justified. He was not saved because he boasted in himself how good he was. And often those who fight for truth boast in their own orthodoxy. 
You and I can know a lot. We can memorize the catechism. We can memorize lots of scriptures and never put it to good use if we don't seek unity of the brethren. Matthew Henry said, never make anything a condition of your fellow believers' acceptance with you, but that which God has made the conditions of their acceptance with him. So if we have truth without unity, we become critical and harsh. But if we seek unity without truth, we become weak and vulnerable, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We love these children. I'm thankful that they're in here worshiping and learning how to worship. But they are easily deceived. You know it as well as I do which is why they need examples around them like you. They're tossed about believing doctrines that have no truth in them. We're not to be children in knowledge, weak in faith, lacking discernment. Besides, there is no true unity without a foundation of gospel truth. So the ministry up here and in there, the ministry of all of us, is designed to build us up so that we attain to the unity of the faith. Jesus implies that God uses truth to sanctify and truth alone unifies. So if we seek unity without truth, we're destroyed. Truth and unity have to go together. But as a final note, I want you to notice the order. The council dealt first with truth and then concerned themselves with unity. James says in chapter 3 of his letter, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. God's wisdom, the truth of the gospel, is pure. No mixture of error. No mere maxims, no human opinions, it's God's truth. You and I often misinterpret it. We can distort it. Sometimes we even make it say something it doesn't say. But that truth from heaven is above all things absolutely pure. And if it's received in its purity, then it will bring about the fruit of peaceability, unity. So first in importance and priority is truth and as a close second, unity. If we sacrifice the truth, dear friends, there will not be any true unity. It has to be defended. But in and with that truth, you and I have to strive to live at peace with one another, to love each other. And love covers a multitude of sins. So truth and unity ought to govern the church's behavior in all things. And by God's grace, that'll happen here at Redeemer. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what happened in the Jerusalem Council, how the gospel was defended and maintained and preserved, and how the unity of the church was pursued and highlighted. We pray that here, that among us, we too would embrace and defend the truth and preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of truth. Thank you for Jesus, our great King. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. 
for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.